HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. The Houseman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. Hey guys, the journey on Houndsman XP is teamed up with Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform that was made for hunters by hunters. If you guys and gals have listened to any of the other podcasts that I've been on, you know what a huge outdoor enthusiast I am. I love being in the woods with my hounds. There's nothing more exciting than hearing the thunder of a spring gobbler. I love fishing for trout in the brooks and the streams, and I love being on the river chasing that ever-elusive fish of a thousand cast, the muskie. Go Wild is the place that I can post my trophies, hunts, and memories without being censored. But Go Wild is so much more than that. It's a place to share your stories, sharpen your skills, hone your tactics, get gear reviews, and shop for anything outdoors. When you make a purchase from the Go Wild store, everything is free shipping. Anything that you purchase anywhere in the country, no matter how big, free shipping. So go down to the show notes, click on the Go Wild link at the bottom, and get signed up today. And let's go wild. Today on the journey, we're going to stay here at the the Hyatt Ranch and sit down in the kitchen, and we're going to have a rally point. Chris and I are going to go back over the last couple of episodes and kind of talk about some highlights that Jeff and Cameron and, and Bart had put out and just go over some things, a lot of information, and we want to make sure that that you guys and girls take away everything you can from these, um, these guests because if you don't know them or don't know anything about them, they are the experts in the field that I bring my information from. Um, you know, Cameron is, I mean, he's one of them in the detection world that is heads and shoulders above most, not all, but most Cameron runs a very successful, um, detection business. He is involved with a lot of universities, a lot of studies on how dogs think and behave. Um, he, he, he has a lot to offer, you know, and if you look at Jeff, um, Jeff's the same when it comes to the tracking world for, for man tracking. Um, you know, Jeff is one of them. He's, he's the elite. And then, you know, you talk about Bart. I've known about that program for well over 10 years. And, um, 
you know, it's just phenomenal to be able to sit down and talk to those guys and pick their brain and talk about what makes them successful. And a lot of that stuff parallels into what we do. So we want to make sure you guys don't miss anything. We're going to give you some, we're going to give you a slight pup update. We're going to have another pup that's going to be running solo. But uh, for you guys in Virginia that are listening, um, I attended the Virginia Bear Hunter Association meeting yesterday up in Thompson Valley, which is in Tazewell. You know, they always have a big cookout after and and just a good time. But for the guys in Virginia um, that didn't go, which a lot of people didn't go, I just want to kind of update you on what's going on here in Virginia. And, you know, we've got to have membership. Um, if we don't, if we don't participate and if we don't do some certain things, you know, we're only hurting ourselves and in the big scheme of things, it only takes a few minutes to do some of these things. It's not going to be very time consuming for you to participate. Um, so one of the things that they brought up was the lack of membership. So, you know, guys for $15, you can join the Virginia Bear Hunter Association. Um, we can grow the organization and start being a bigger presence on some of the laws and the regulations and stuff that are that are coming down through the legislative session. The second thing was last year, um, Hunter Thrasher, the uh, president, had went to Richmond and asked for more training season. And for everybody that's hunting in Virginia, you know that we train from August 1st to September, the last Saturday in September, and then we have the three day the three day early kill season, but all like August is so miserably hot and humid that it's hard. Um, you know, today here at the house it's supposed to be ninety three degrees, and it, it's just hard on the dogs. It's sometimes it's unsafe, so they're looking to get more training season. And last year when the DWR put the um, request out for comments, we had less than a hundred comments so that that gets read by the dwr um your congressman and stuff read that so everybody thinks everything's hunky-dory do because the bear hunters didn't comment seemed like everything was okay so that hurt our chances um when we went when hunter went to richmond to ask for that so you if you guys are wanting stuff put into law or changed within the game department you know we have to get we have to get involved um i know i said it earlier on in one of our podcasts that i'm going to try my best to get to get more involved and um try to help us i want to be proactive i want to get in front of things um and if if anybody's keeping up well most of the people across the country may know this but so the landowners um, down in eastern virginia have sued the state over the right to retrieve law. So what people don't know or may not know is that there's a group out of California that's pushing this. And, you know, we talk about our enemies. Um, I, got a go question. I got questions. You, you, right. ju- you just, I hit the record button and you just took off. Yeah. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah. I, w- I want to talk about uh, Actually, I want to make a tell, people um man if you i think it's one of those deals when you live in the middle of something um you just get used to your surroundings and um 
you kind of become used to what's going on around you. So I kind of want to give you some perspective from Indiana looking at Virginia and some of the things that I know that are going on in Virginia. And um, I know I'm like that. I Things can happen in Indiana that, um, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's just, it's always happening like that or whatever. And, uh, but, but this is what, for one thing, um, this whole deal with the right to retrieve, you guys have had the opportunity to enjoy something that houndsmen across the United States would, they would give a lot for that. And, um, it's a privilege and a right. Well, I guess it's a right. If it's a right to retrieve law, um, that you do not, you've got to get involved there. You cannot sit back and let people, uh, take that away from you. Our rights are being stripped from us in every area of our, our lives daily. And, um, so if, if you're a Virginia bear hunter and you're not doing anything like to, to help on this thing, or you're not making your voice heard, then what are you doing? I'll just say it. What are you doing? There is, there is, this is worth saving and it's going to take every bear hunter, every houndsman out there, uh, to get involved in the Virginia bear hunters association, the Virginia sporting dog Alliance, you know, some of these groups that are going toe to toe and <clears throat> you can't just pay your dues to the bear hunters association and think, Oh, I'm doing my part. That's not going to cut it. Well, you've got, you need to be a member of at least three organizations, at least three. That's the rule of thumb. So if you joined the Virginia Bear Hunters Association, paid your dues to the Sportsman's Alliance, and joined the Virginia Hunting Dog Alliance, that's your three, okay? And the reason I tell you to, to join three is because they all need your support, and each one does something different for you, and and all three of those organizations are going to are gonna get busy. So from the national level, looking at Virginia, man, you guys got some things going on there. And let me tell you what my perspective is on that whole thing, Heath. You guys have got a huge bear hunting culture. And you're being pushed into very limited space. Um, you're being pushed up into these. And even though the Jefferson National Forest, I think it's one of the largest national forests in the eastern United States. 78,000 acres. That's where that, we're at. That's nothing. 78,000 yeah. acres is nothing. I mean, the, the Hoosier National Forest in Indiana is a million acres. Wow. So you, you guys have got to, I, I've got to look that up. I think you got more than that in the Jefferson. 17, 17% of Virginia is public land. Yeah. Well, and maybe it's 22. Maybe it's, maybe it's 22, but it's, it's right there in right at below 20 or right above 20. But the traditional um, lives that everybody got to live, it's like when, when I was hunting there last year. You know, the, the bears or the, the hounds, my dogs crossed over the AT and dropped down into some private property. And this is a landowner sitting against National Forest property that had caught my dogs and had them pinned up on his porch because he didn't understand what was going on. And that's what's going to affect your bear hunting. You know, that, that area right there traditionally had been owned by somebody, some family 
that were like that were like we're trying to make a living on this land we don't care if you come across the top of this mountain but now it is owned by somebody who is trying to develop that piece of property for residential homes and he doesn't understand what's going on so you got you've got the encroachment of people who are not familiar with rural country life moving into the areas that, that you all love to bear hunt in and they've got a voice and you've got to make sure that we maintain and have a voice. The other thing you got going on is the mange issue. Yep. So let's talk about that real quick. Um, Steve nicely went over the mange. We're actually, they're having a meeting on the, the 30th or the 31st up around Harrisonburg. Um, the, it has, it has really put a dent in the bear population um, as far as, up in the Harrisonburg, Shenandoah Valley. And they are very concerned. It is going to work our way down. Uh, you talk about the mange mite. Uh, they said it could lay on the ground for, you know, so many, like a week or maybe a week or two, and bear can pick it up. But I had the, the brochures in my truck. I don't have it in front of me. A couple of things that concern me with that is they say that the bear is a, sol a solitary animal that you know but we all know if you go into a feeding patch you go into an oak patch you may have five or six bear coming in there and feeding a cornfield cornfields right now this time of year uh, they talk about treating it with with ivermac um i don't know how they're going to treat it that was a question that i'd i'd like to ask the biologist um because if if ivermac treats it it should be like you know for horses and cats and dogs and everything else it should kill the mite is that mite still able to cause the damage if it's dead? Does it does it lay? It it shouldn't. So that's some questions that I hope they ask next week. I won't be able to attend that meeting, but um, mange is a is a big issue. It's definitely hurting our numbers. Um, another thing that they brought up, and it, it kind of puts us in a the hunters as a as a whole in a bad a bad position. Um, when you talk about decreasing the numbers and they talked about the number of the number of sows that have been killed over the past couple of years have been up in the forties. I do not have the statistics because I would like to research that myself. What do you mean up in the forties? Explain that number a little bit. 40% okay, of, of the population okay. that was killed. Mm -hmm. Well, I do know from my interaction with the, um, the DWR that the whole early season is when the majority of those sows are being killed mm -hmm. those three days. And they did that to decrease. They wanted to decrease the population 25%. <clears throat> so as hunters, we've got to be more diligent. You know, we talk about it in our group, Chris, you've been here and we've talked about, you know, picking and choosing what, what we take and what we don't take. Um, you know, guys, I can't tell you what you can and can't do, but I would say that, for us and our group that we hunt with, um, it's okay to take a sow, but we try to pick the more mature and older sows. We don't want to take the young sows that's developing. And um, and like I said, we don't kill many at all. In fact, I mean, how many bear did we leave sitting last year? Oh, because bucks. we thought they yeah. were sows. Um, and sows are what's going to populate where we're hunting. So well, me, um, they, did talk, they me, did talk about the decrease, and the mange was a big deal. And then on top of the mange, the, the sow... The sow kill has been up tremendously. And they said that it needs to be down like 26% to maintain a healthy population, and we're up in the 40s. 
So you think about that. Who, Eventually, who, it's going to catch us. Who gave you that number, the 26%? Um, Steve Nicely. Um, is he a biologist was, or is he with the Bear Hunters Association? He's with the Bear Hunter Association. Well, let me, let me, I would like to see some actual numbers and yes. recommendations from Virginia. Not to say that, you know, here, here's the thing, that my take on it. If you're bear hunting, this places like we do in Virginia, you know what your bear population is there. Okay. You, you know what it is. And you know, um, if you're having trouble killing, you know, treeing bears, catching bears, then you don't have a bear overpopulation property problem. You don't have a bear density problem, but you have to be objective about it. If you're going out and treeing, you know, four or five bears in a 10,000 acre area before noon, you probably got a bear. You got, you got some, you got some issues. Um, it's not an issue of training young dogs i mean that's a great situation to be in but when you're talking about sarcoptic mange and health issues and things like that um there's certain parts where harvesting those sows is going to help the bear density problems and in turn it's going to help with the mange issue so i don't like Heath, you guys know what's going on where you're hunting. If you guys mm. think, man, we don't need to kill any sows because we're not catching that mean bear, then you kill the sow, you kill your future bear. But if you're hunting in an area that's got sarcopathies, mites, that are that are causing this mange issue, you either we're either going to have to take charge of that and start harvesting some of those bear out of there, or Virginia is going to set up a program where they are going to kill them and Tennessee saw a similar thing where the landowners were complaining about this and they opened up baiting and, and all kinds of stuff that drew bear out of the area that houndsmen normally hunted. Um, and, and it was, it was a frustrating thing for houndsmen. So either, yeah, we, so either we solve the problem or the, or we allow, or we trust the government, which is scary to solve the problem for us. Yeah, the ten-year uh, bear management plans up this year too, so we'll see what comes out of it. Um, but what I'm saying, guys, you guys from Virginia, even our, our bordering states, West Virginia, North Carolina, several members from North Carolina, I seen on the paper yesterday. Um, if you guys are coming over here and hunting, join the Virginia Bear Hunter Association. It's fifteen dollars, and we've got to get together with all of us, and we have got to be smart about what we do. We have to be smart when we interact with other people, and um, we want we want to get ahead of this and start being proactive. And you know, we just we're, they're asking for support. They're asking for membership. Um, like I said, there's several things going on. Like I said, the right to retrieve that that goes to court next month in August. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be a big deal. And if it if it passes, I don't know where we're going to stand. Um, you know, we may just not have permission to go get our dogs, and if the landowner tells us no, then there we go. So I'll put the uh, I'll put the link to the Virginia Bear Hunters Association in the show notes. Absolutely, yeah. We we want you guys to join. Like I said, Virginia's if I can do a, anything, yeah, Virginia is a great place to bear hunt. I, I I and I'm glad you said that, Heath, because I'll, I'm going to pay my membership to the Virginia Bear Hunters Association as well. And I'm from Indiana, but I come I was over there made several trips to Virginia last year to bear hunt. So might as well yep. support the people that are 
fighting a fight every day. I feel like a free. I feel like a freeloader if I don't. I'm, really, I do. I mean, I paid. Hey, if you if you can't afford it, I'll pay it for you. Like I said, fifteen dollars is worth it for me. Um, you know, these guys in your groups that are leading your dog, these young kids that are leading your dogs and and helping you catch dogs and stuff. You know, sign them up. I mean, pay like I said, fifteen dollars is not a big deal. It's worth fifteen dollars. Somebody lead my dogs to the little thicket. You know, one time, <laughs> heck yeah, I'll shuck it $15 out. So just think about it. Like I said, you know, if we can get some guys on board, get our membership up and start participating. Uh, make sure when the DWR puts out the comment section that you go on there and write your comments and do it professionally. Um, that's, that's another thing. Do it professionally. Tell them what you're asked. Tell them what you want or tell them what, you know, how it's affecting you. I, so I'll I'll shut up with that, but yes. Just real quick, um, real quick, I'll I'll give you a quick story of of that relates to this whole thing. So we had the opportunity to have a bobcat season in in Indiana, and all the hunters were like, "Oh yeah, we're going to get a bobcat season." The scientific data is there; it's all there. Blah blah blah. It goes to public comment, like it does in so many states. They have to open it up for the public comment sessions. Yep. And the hunters didn't show up, but guess who did? The, the people, antis. the people that were against it, they showed up. And so we don't have a bobcat season in the state of Indiana because hunters thought, man, this is a slam dunk. There's nothing to it. You've got to show up. You got to show up. You got to make your voice heard. Yeah, and I just Googled it just to reference. It's 1.8 million acres of national forest between the George Washington and the Jefferson. Yeah. And then there's 4,900 acres of um, CWA land yeah. management. So, yeah. yeah, that's that. But anyway, all right. So help us out with the Virginia Bear Hunter Association. Go sign up and let's let's get more involved join the sportsman's alliance join yep. the join the there's a new organization that was formerly known as the western bear foundation uh joe condellis and those guys have recently expanded there is actually a chapter of the american bear association there's a virginia chapter now so look into that that may be an option for you as well yeah i was going to try to look up uh the Mm, I can't find it. There'll be a, yeah, it's July 31st in Massanutten, the hunt, Massanutten Hunt Club at 2.30. Um, the DWR is going to do the, the thing on the mange. So um, that's, if, you, if you're up in that area and you can get to it, that would be great. And the, like I said, the 10-year man, bear management plan is up for review. Um so watch for the comment section guys if you got facebook or facebook you can go on the virginia bear Hunter association and click a like and you'll get that information so anyway all right state uh chris let's move on <laughs> to uh the pup update so just give you guys a quick rundown on the pups is so i've got three i ended up keeping Allie, axe and attica attitude yeah um the dogs have taken i mean they they are completely changing um forest ended up getting two he ended up getting ash and ari ari is by far the smartest one of the bunch 
I mean, they're playing fetch like a, a border collie. She'll Addison will throw a tennis ball. She'll go get it, bring it back, drop it. Um, just super, super smart. And then Wesley got August, um, which made the most improvement over the last session that we had talked about. I feel like August is probably going to be the superstar of the bunch. Um, and I wouldn't have told you that at three months old. I wouldn't have told you that at four months old. Isn't it crazy but how they change? I mean, you, it's amazing. It's now, my three hoodlums, I've got to keep an eye on them because they've got to where they're baying up my neighbor's cows. They're baying up my neighbor's horses. So I've got to stay on them. Mm-hmm. Um, they are getting to that stage where if it moves, they want to bark and chase and, and do it. So been been getting on them for that. Uh, we have the truck is we're not even loading in the truck anymore because that's just natural to them. Um, the tone, and I'm going to talk about the tone because I got a lot of questions about this in a minute. Um, we, you know, we, we worked the tone on them. Uh, Forrest went on vacation a couple weeks ago, and I was pup setting, so I had three, two, his two, and I ended up running over one of them. I run over Ash coming home from work in my patrol car, and thank the Lord, he's not dead. He is okay. Um, but they come running up the end of the driveway like they always do. I stopped. I counted one, two, three, four, five pups, make sure they're all on the left side of the vehicle. And I guess from the time I was counting to the time I pulled out, he must have slipped down in front of the vehicle. And um, anyway, I pummeled him pretty good, but he's okay. No damage. Um, maybe you just hit him with, you know, maybe you just tagged him with the bumper or that. Oh, no. He went under the car. Like Ooh. he rolled out from the other side. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it was bad. But he got up, run underneath the porch, and so I pulled up on up in the driveway and went under the deck and checked him out, make sure nothing was broken. I'm like, okay. Well, then he tiptoed over and got in the doghouse and just flopped down, and I went in and changed clothes and went out and went over him really, really good. There was nothing broken. He was real tender um, in his midsection, and I'm like, well, if his insides didn't get squished, he's going to be okay. And I text Forrest and told him, and um, so everything's worked out. He, he, he's a little sore. I think he's barking a little more excessively than he normally did. So either he's got bruised or got so he's banged up somewhere that's causing him a little bit of pain. Um, and it's, I mean, it's nothing like every time he bark moves, he barks, but, um, he's barking more than he, he normally did. So, but yeah, so they're six months old as of yesterday. Um, so what are we you are, what are you doing what are you doing to uh, get on them? You say you're getting on them for baying the neighbors' cows and the, the horses. What is mm-hmm. that? What does that entail, Heath? I take a broom out there and chase them off. Basically, um, they when they see me coming with a broom now, they're like, "Okay, I'm done." What happens is you can call one of them back, um, no problems. Yeah, you can holler, and one of them, one of the three, will come running to you. And then the other ones will come back when the one does. And then one of them decides they want to go back. And then they all three go back. So they have been punished by, I put them up. Like if they get to doing that and I take, and I call them two or three times and they end up going back, I just put them up. Um, they were running the neighbor's car up the driveway. And when I say running, I don't mean like chasing it, barking it. They were, they were following her up the driveway. Um, we've got that pretty much stopped. Like when we hear a car coming, we go out on the porch, we holler for them, 
and we're giving them, you know, we're using the food. Um, what I'm doing is taking a loaf of, um, a piece of bread, breaking it off. And when they come to the porch, boom, 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 feed them, feed them, feed them. And it was about a week, week and a half of that. And now, like I said, it's, it's over. It's done. It was fixed. Um, I just don't want them chasing cars up and down the road. If they come out hunting, let me, um, let me so tell you I, something I found out was going on here. Um, uh, you know, I, of course, when I had Krieger, the first Yog, I ran mm-hmm. over him because he had a car mm-hmm. fetish. <coughs> well, I noticed that Tough, my other Yog here, he is starting to develop that same car fetish. Well, I was standing here and I was watching when the mail driver came in. Guess what's happening? When He's the, feeding them. Throwing dog biscuits out of the out mm-hmm. of the car when they come in. And I approached her and I said, ma'am. I know that you got a big heart and you want to feed these dogs, but you're going to get one of them ran over by feeding these dogs. I said, I don't need you doing that. You know, throwing dog biscuits out. And she was going all the way up and circling. My barn lot here makes a big circle and she's got to turn around in it. And she mm-hmm. was throwing uh, dog biscuits to Cajun up by the barn and, and all the dogs. I mean, she was coating this place with dog biscuits when she would come <laughs> in. And then she can't figure out why the dogs were excited to see her and getting in her way it's like and she she throws them out to try to get them away from her and it's totally counterproductive yep same thing um that's kind of what happened with ours is the chelsea would come in and as soon as she'd step out of the car ah, there's a big party yeah and then the car car started becoming exciting and that was a positive and then now they're surrounding the cars and so we fixed that in both the dog and the human we yeah. had to fix the <laughs> I mean, you know, we did. We, we did. Right. Yeah. So that was going on, and we finally got that fixed. So, you know, it's a process. It's There's always going to be little things it's that come journey. up. Yeah. Um, and while we're talking about the journey, so my good friend Brent, B, we call him BB, he was up, and uh, yesterday he brought me another puppy. That's so what you need. Start, you need. Yeah, another I need puppy. like a hole in the head. Um I don't even know what this thing is. It's like a Heinz 57. It's probably going to be a big got, one. It's got plot, walker, English. I mean, I'm telling you, it's a Heinz 57. Looks like a black and tan um, <laughs> is what it looks like. <laughs> he, he does not match the rest of my kennel. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, he um, he brought him up, um, and we're going we're gonna to start with him. So I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a little bit about him. I've only spent you know, 30, 40 minutes, minutes with him. Um, he is a little human shy, but now when BB got him out of the truck, I had my three pups, my German shepherd was loose in the yard and he come out of that truck. Like he owned the world. Very confident. I mean, boom, you know, run right up in the middle of them. Like you guys, um, I did like that. Um, but he is a little human shy and, and BB said, you know, he's been out of town working. So they've been running loose on his farm. They've, Somebody was coming in and feeding, so there was a very little interaction. Um, so we're going to work on that and see how that transitions. Um, you know, I I want a dog that, that we can fool with and can handle. And I'm not saying he's bad, but he's definitely uh, a little – I don't want to use the word timid because he's not timid. He's shy. I've got, he's a, I've timid, got a pup shy. like that. The one I kept out of this litter of jazz, um, he's, he'll be three months old next week. And I kept him for that reason, you know, instead of, instead of shipping him out of here and, 
I knew what I had. I looked at him. I thought, well, if if I don't want him going to the wrong place and you know not being successful, so I decided to hang on to him. I call him Whip. He he has been the same way. And I'll tell you how I got him over that was I got him over just through hand feeding, you know, mm-hmm. just hand feeding him. And man, when I see him now, he comes running. I have my wife hand feed him. I've had other, you know, my neighbor was down the other day and, and had him hand, give him some food out of his hand. And uh, he's coming around, coming around yep. out of that. Just just the kids phone with him yesterday evening. I could see a little difference in him. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, too worried about it. But, yeah, so that's another project I have. Uh, I want to go back to my pups real quick because um, y'all knew that Allie was my pick. Um, and I want to tell you how much these dogs have changed from four to six months. Uh, cause that's kind of when we made the decision and it was a group decision. I mean, the kid, they loved her personality. You know, she, like I said, she was even keel. She wasn't, she wasn't over the top and she wasn't at the time August, but I feel like that she's going to be a mediocre dog. I can already see some things that makes me feel i could be wrong but i don't think she's going to be my number one dog out of that litter um like i said she's she's interested she's not interested um just some of the actions that she has um so i'm i'm i might we may have messed up there we should have maybe kept august but it is what it is and I feel like she's going to run a tree. I mean, I, there's no doubt about that. But is she going to be my lead dog? Mm-hmm. I guess I don't. I don't know. Um, like I said, I feel like August is probably given the right, the right exposure, the right training at the right time. I feel like August is probably going to be the superstar of the bunch. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll follow up on that in a year, but that's kind of where I'm at. But yeah, Allie's kind of even, and it shows. Like we we picked the even kill dog. Um, you know, like I said, she's, you know, she's not overly hyper. She's not, you know, she's more laid back. Well, think about I'm how seeing, much they've changed just in yes. the last month or so. So you, yeah. I don't think, yeah. I feel the same way about this pup that I've got. You know, I felt like he was not the superstar. Um, so we'll have to see. We'll see if he changes. And then Tough, my Yog here, I was really concerned about his hunt drive, you know, not prey drive. If you put mm-hmm. prey in front of him, he's he's flipped on. Don't chase. Yeah. But but hunt drive to get out there and really hunt, and I've seen a big change in him in the last couple of weeks. So. Yeah, we'll we'll see how he um, how, we'll see how she progresses. We'll see how she develops. Uh, I know Bart talked a lot about development, um, and so we'll, we'll see how she develops. But like I said, right now, out of the three that I got. She's number three. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I'll just be honest. She's number three. So that took a big turn pretty quick for me. But yeah, that's that. All right. So let's get into the last three episodes and let's see what we can take away from these episodes. Man, I'll tell you what, those last three episodes you did were, I mean, they were so informative, so much information in those. It's exactly what I wanted to you to accomplish with your podcast Heath and the reason I'm excited about it and the reason I think everybody should be excited about those episodes is because 
these are leaders in the dog training community worldwide leaders mm -hmm. um and just because they're not specifically talking about a hound and hunting what you're doing is you're bringing experts in the field of dog training and bringing it to houndsmen and and what we can do here is break it down a little bit more to talk about how it applies to us but but I'm extremely excited about the quality guests. I mean, this is like, this is like if you've got a kid that that's interested in baseball, then you've got a superstar baseball player that's that's giving them pointers on how to improve their game. And it's it's yeah. breaking it down. You know, maybe your kids, maybe your kid. Um, there's so many parts. Let's just talk about it like baseball for a second. Um, you may have a kid that, that's struggling with, with hitting. So you bring in a hitting coach or a, a superstar that's, that's a home run slammer, you know, putting Mark McGuire in, in a one-on-one -on -one with them, and, and you're going to improve those skills. You're not only going to improve those skills, but just by listening to somebody like that, then you're going to improve the other aspects of their game as well. And that's what I see you doing with these guests. You know, Jeff Shetler comes in and talks about scent, and we call it Man Tracker, and that was a great episode. So let's, I would like to start with that one. Yeah, so it, what what did you take away? What did you, you know, you and I have a similar background with the, with the tracking, with the hemp, with the police dogs, um, and like I said, I, the first class I set in with Jeff, and I can't tell you what year it was, I want to say 2013. Uh, it could have been 14. You know, I've been to Jeff's place a couple times and trained and, and actually went to downtown Charleston and tracked through the city and through the homeless camps. And, you know, the thing that resonated with me being with Jeff was we he is taking our police canines, who I was taught in a completely different manner, and I didn't never understood why we were doing that. And he was doing the same thing my hounds are doing, just on a lead. And that resonated with me that like I understood behavior. I understood more about what the dogs were doing. And I understood that, you know, we, we have to let the dogs operate at their capabilities instead of forcing them into doing things that, that we, that's not natural. <clears throat> so that was my biggest takeaway when I was with Jeff. And, you know, like I said, we have built a relationship over, you know, that the last eight, 10 years, whatever it may be. Um, and, you know, I still lean on him. Like we all have people, mentors and coaches and people that we lean on. And, you know, in the tracking side of things, I mean, that's kind of my go-to. If I got a question, if I've got something that I need to figure out or I don't quite understand what's going on, you know, that's, that's, that's where I go. Um, the so, the thing that Jeff didn't get into is his his knowledge and expertise in the way that scent and he talked about it a little bit breaking down the bacterial particles breaking it down, um, but the environment and how how the the elements the, the weather elements affect odor that was crazy I, I, yeah. it wasn't crazy because you and I have talked about this numerous times. <clears throat> and I liked what you said just a second ago about 
as a police canine handler, you know, my dog's nose on my police dog operates the exact same way my hound's nose works. They're, de they're detecting scent. They're, they're breaking it down, developing scent pictures and environment. And, and we have seen hounds or our dogs very close up on a 20 foot lead tracking and we've seen them how they react when they hit a terrain change when it goes from grass to a road to a brushy situation we've seen those dogs from very right there standing right there with them and see how they react and how they struggle to with with things like terrain changes when it comes out of a shaded area and goes into an open wide open field that's got the sun beating down on it. We've seen that happen and we've, we know what we need to do to get them back on track. And that for me, when I started doing that and started seeing that, then I had a better understanding of what was going on with my hounds when they were half a mile away from me trying to, trying to run a track. Yeah. Surface changes are huge. That's what you're talking about. That's mm -hmm. what we call them. Surface changes. When, when I come out of vegetation into a hard top road or any, you know, yeah. The, and if a car or two passes, then the odor is going to be blown one way or the other, oh depending gosh. on what way that, you know, the, the vehicles are traveling. Um, our, all of our dogs, we slow our dogs down at surface changes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if we're coming into, and, and when I say surface, I'm going from soft like vegetation into a hard surface, whether it be, you know, pavement, gravels, um, dirt, rocks, sand, you're going to see a behavioral change in that dog. Most of the dogs are going to slow down if, if they're experienced and they're going to work that scent. There's where you get into running overrunning tracks and stuff. Yes. Um, and know, we, look so at, that, we look at it as track loss, you know, at that point they, yeah. and they have a temporary loss. Mm -hmm. I, I, I listened to Brett Vaughn and the Dale Lee tapes this past mm -hmm. week. Um, Dale was talking about, a situation where they were running a lion, the lion comes down the mountain, comes out of the desert, makes a road crossing, and the dogs lost the scent. They lost the track at that point. And Dale Lee's um, interpretation of that was that the lion shut off his scent because he was jumped and he shut off his scent what dale lee was seeing was you were going from one environment to a terrain change or a surface change at that point and the dogs didn't know how to react to it they'd broke down they'd lost the track they found the track on the other side of the road according to dale and they put the dogs back on the track and the dogs took it and they they cold trailed out but I'm not saying, you know, obviously Dale Lee has looked at the guy's a legend. I mean, how do you go and say, well, you're wrong, Dale Lee? Well, people. But in their mind, that's what they were seeing. People used yeah. to think the sun yeah. rotated around the earth, too. You know, yeah. that the sun came up in the east and set in the west before we realized that the rock we're living on is the one that's spinning. You know, the sun's constant. And, and so. I'm not trying to pick at this, but I know that there are several people out there that take that kind of information and they develop this mindset. Well, Dale Lee said it, so it must be true. That's not what was happening. You know, uh, 
that's why guys like Jeff Shetler are so important when we can when we can get that kind of expertise and that experience and that knowledge we understand what is happening out there when we have a breakdown on a track or when our dogs get into a scent pool and we think that you know what's going on well we obviously we know at that point that that we've got to we've got to get get in there and understand what's happening and we've got to understand what's going on and it'll help us be better houndsmen better trainers yeah um, scent pools were a huge thing for me it helped me understand and if i could do a visual of a scent pool um, and when i teach my tracking classes when i teach my tactical tracking classes this is the example that i use to give everybody a visual if you take a cup of water and you tilt that cup till it starts dripping okay it drips it drips it drips and as con when as it continues to drip it makes a puddle and that puddle expands the whole time that you're dripping that water mm -hmm. into it that is a visual of a scent pool um All right, when so when game is bedded up that's huge um you know now if they're in a, a rock bluff or they're inside a hole in the ground it's contained it's a different and it's a different scent picture um you take but yes you, you take a lion or a bear that's laying on a sunny slope and and just laying there in the open just bedded down laying in the open enjoying the day relaxing soaking up some sun the whole time that animal is laying there he is saturating that area with his scent and when a hound has ran that he's taken that track into that area and then he's been working on like you said that drip here a drip here a drip here they've got a direction they've got it figured out they've got the scent picture in their mind and they're moving to an area when they hit that scent pool it's like whoa something just changed mm -hmm. and now they've got to redefine what that scent picture looks like in their mind and it causes them to break down some dogs start barking more when that happens some dogs open less on the track when that happens but they didn't lose it nothing picked up its scent it just they've got to redefine what this looks like and work out the problem they're problem solving at that point yeah yeah they just got to find the exit track and you know that's basically and my dogs get quiet uh, my yeah, dogs will do they have a tendency to get quiet um and then all of a sudden after that that boom. period of quiet it's like a boom a roar yep. <gasps> so you know i know i know what's going that's on that's the jump yep um so yeah, I mean Jeff, like I said, Jeff brings he a lot of the information I knew from my hounds, like being with Jeff like opened up my mind for the canine world and I do things differently. And I'm I can't say enough how much I have learned through the police side and better understand the dog behavior because of the canine training that I've received and the people that I have been around and learned from. Um, I'm not saying it makes me better or worse, but I definitely feel like I have a better understanding of a lot of things that goes on well, let, because of the training that I've had. And let's talk about that training. I mean, just spend a couple minutes here cause we're, we're really getting deep into it. But, um, the way we understand it is because we have set tracks up during training with our police dogs where we had somebody go in there and sit down. We tell them, 
go in there and sit down until we call you on the radio. And we leave them there for 45 minutes so that we can see how a dog reacts when they hit the scent pool. We mm -hmm. tell people, we want you to go down this way and cross this hard top road at least three times, you know, between here and the end of the track so that we can see that. So we put a control in there so that we can recognize what's happening when it happens. When That way, when you're on a real track, you get out there, boom, you see the reaction. It's like, oh, I saw this in training a week ago. This is a scent pool. Okay, this is a surface change. Now, what do we got to do to solve problem, problem solve here to help the dog problem solve? Yeah, it's like Ariel. Ariel said it in her podcast. You know, it's a controlled environment. I'm able to yes. manipulate the environment or the training scenario to cause or read a behavior. And that's the difference in the police side and the hounds is hounds are off lead and it's uncontrolled 99% of the time. Right. Um, so that's, that's just the difference. Um, but yeah, so like I said, Jeff is a, is an expert in his field. You know, I'm very fortunate that I have a relationship with him and that I've been able to lean on him, um, throughout the years. And I, I can't, I can't say enough that, um, our group as a whole has been successful because of the stuff that we have taken from him. Just so, a, just your right. ability to, to be able to make that contact and that access. I mean, this is, this is huge. It's the people you're bringing Heath are, um, having the access to those people is like being able to call up Pete Rose and talk to him about hitting the baseball, you know, it, it helps. I mean, I'm telling you, yeah. it helps. And then, okay, all right, let's move on to Cameron. Yeah. What'd you take away from Cameron? Wow. Um, Cameron was, um, it was technical. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it's one of those podcasts that you need to listen to a couple of times to, to really be able to digest it. You got to go back for seconds. Um, and digest it. I love it because I like that technical side and I like learning like that. Um, the biggest takeaway that I had from Cameron was his emphasis on <clears throat> documentation of what's going on out there and being able to have a baseline. You document how your dog reacted in this situation or at this at this test or at this junction or, you know, whatever it is, you document it and then you have a baseline so that you know what's going on. I, that's the biggest thing I took away. Yeah. And I guess where I do it all the time, that's just a common practice documentation, documentation. Do I do it with my hounds? Um, not to the extent I do with the, the, the police dogs, because if they come out of the car, it's documented. Exactly. <laughs> you're running exercise, it's documented. So, um, maybe I take more of a mental note of it than I do a written note. We have been very specific with the puppies. We have documented a lot with the pups. Um, the one thing that I would say parallels with what we do is, and you said it, nose works, nose work. Whether it's, you know, finding narcotics, finding explosives, finding um, human remains, finding a bear, finding a deer, a fox, a coyote, lion, coon, whatever. It's all nose work. Um, and I really don't know that I thought about this much until uh, Cameron and I had talked. But we talked about the way dogs learn. 
And he talks about the cognitive test that he does. And he talked about whether the dog is a memory learner or inference learner. Yes. So for us in the hound world, we rely a lot on memory. Dog loads on top of the truck. We drive down the road. Odor hits. Dog barks. We turn dog loose. For the inference part of it, which is guidance from the handler or direction from the handler, those dogs are going to have a harder time understanding what we're asking them to do. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So I'm looking at it as a learning learning position of the dog. So, and I know that most houndsmen are not going to do the test that, that Cameron talked about, but I feel like our memory dogs are going to be your, your quicker learners and they're going to perform better for us in the hound world. Because our environments change daily. I mean, you know, we go, it's not like me going into a, a apartment complex and searching uh, a apartment after apartment. You know, it's the same four walls, the same kitchen, the same bathroom. You know, everything's basically the same except the furniture set up and the odors. Well, it's like where us, go ahead. Uh, it's just like, it's like this. It's not a strange thing for us to walk into an apartment as people we expect to see a kitchen we expect to see a bathroom a couple bedrooms it's not a strange environment that we walk into in our country in in the united states now if you walk into if you walk into a home in the middle east which i've done (laughs) it's completely Mm -hmm. different the kitchen doesn't look the same there's a bodet where the toilet should be a flat toilet and you're like what the heck is that first time i saw one of those i was like well how do you use this thing you know the bedrooms look different so for your police dog that's working in that situation it's not a it's it's a different environment but but it's not a strange environment what no because we have we've set that train we if we know that we're going to afghanistan and i mean i've i've worked with the explosive dogs um you know i help train dogs for the 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 federal government right we set that up we do exactly what you're saying we put that environment that dog's seen that environment a thousand times before he gets on a plane and flies over there so when yep. he gets over there boom there okay i've our done gov- this a thousand our times. government's built those types of facilities yes. so that they're they're exact replications of what the dog be dealing with well yep. what for the inference stuff what I have seen, and the inference is is where you're pointing, or the dog's the dog is is cueing off of you. I've seen that in hounds. I've seen mm-hmm. where guys get out of the truck, they see the track. Um, I I just looked at a video the other day that we posted on Houndsman XP. We were driving down the road. Boom! We see a bear track in the snow. We get out and. Now the dogs, and this was a mistake. I'll critique our own video here. We walk around the back. The dogs are blowing up. They smell it. We see it, and we just drop the tailgate and dump the dog. We had dogs going both ways, whereas if we would have had a little bit more inference training in that, and and they knew that when I look at something and I point to something right here, right here, you put them on the track, you got them the right, going the right way. We had dogs going both ways because we did not slow down enough and show the dog. So as a dog learns, 
then we've got to be the ones who guide their action that we're looking for. So if you're just getting out of the truck and pointing, you can do it the other way too, where you point to a track and the dog's relying on you to do it. You may be sending them the wrong way. Um, a dog's going to learn from that, from your actions. So I think it's important not to discount the inference portion mm -mm, mm -mm. because that dog will learn that sort of action from you and take your physical cues and run with them. And then you're, you can create bad habits with inference too. Yeah. And yeah, I don't want to confuse that. You can, you can teach an inference dog to work on memory and you can teach a memory dog to work on inference. And Cameron right, was saying exactly. that. Uh, yep. We set the training up. If we have a dog, like I, I said it in the podcast, if I have a dog that goes into a room, let's say, and we, we, our new handlers are horrible about they'll go place odor when they're, when they get out of their basic school with me, they'll start hiding odor for their self. Um, and they'll <laughs> go out and put it in a gas tank of a car. They flip the lid open, they put it in there. It's easy. Mm -hmm. And then their dogs are hitting on the gas tank of the car every time. The dog goes straight to it, you know, pops a squat, whatever. Well, that's because it's been hid there 10 times. In a row. In a row. Yeah. So it doesn't mean your dogs can't learn the other. It just it, mean, it means, you know, you should understand your dog's learning process. Um, you know, talk about inference, and I'll give you, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing this in my head. Uh, we've got a couple of our guys that will dump the tailgate, and they'll take off running in the direction the track's going. Mm -hmm. And the dogs will, you know right behind them so they're they're using that to get the dogs headed in the right direction does that mean that all the dogs go that way no not all the time but most of the time it works and i've seen some videos of guys posting that where you know they'll start clapping and um you know run going in the direction that they want the dogs to go um, and so forth so yes don't discount it um don't you know don't overlook it but don't get if we have the dog, it's for us in the detection side of it. If, if, if the dog is completely inference, that's all he wants to do is watch dad or mom. He don't, he don't like to work away from us, right. which causes huge issue yep. and so on and so forth. So, yeah. Um, but that's what I took away from that. Um, is that, you know, I was thinking about our dogs, the environment, the way that, that we, most of us kind of hunt the same, you know, whether we're, we're walking, you know, free casting dogs or, you know, we're hunting off of the truck, even hunting off the baits, whatever. Um, most of us are doing basically the same thing, maybe just in a different, uh, different setup. Well, I think that's a good place to, um, you know, talk about hunting off of baits. I've hunted off of baits before and I've, you know, you, you get a, and with cell phone cameras and different things, uh, you get this picture, a bear was here, maybe it, maybe an hour ago, maybe half an hour ago, maybe you jumped a bear off there. And the normal tendency is to dump the box and let them run down the trail and let them figure it out. Whereas maybe if we want to be successful, we take a good dog or two, or maybe an experienced dog and a dog we're trying to develop to understand what's going on here and walk in calmly and let them do their thing around there and get it lined out and then add dogs to a race. Just something that I've seen, I've, I've done it myself. I've blown up good races because it's like, man, we got a bear here. The track's fresh. Let's dump everything. And we just created some major chaos 
and it can be it can be detrimental. And I like hunting with the houndsmen that that can slow down. You're not going to lose any time. You're going you're going to you're going to lose more time trying to get a circus lined out <laughs> than if you just took a couple minutes and approached it a little smarter. I, you know, I've I've done it both ways. I have to. I can't help and it. And I still get I get excited sometimes, but Me too. the majority of the time I like to feed dogs in. Yeah. Um, I I would prefer just to feed them in one at a time, one at a time or two at a time, whatever. And I, I know you know your dogs, you know which ones are going to go and do and you know which ones you should probably you know, I've got a dog that I need to put in the middle. That way he don't get sidetracked. I want dog, I want the back dogs, you know, taking him along on the ride. Yeah. No, I, I know you got to just know your dogs. Um, well, I like yeah. to dump mine out on on your walkers that way because I'm hunting plots to show you guys how to do it. So see the <laughs> ego, the ego kicks in. It's like, oh, those walkers can't figure it out. I'm going to drop these plots and show them how it's done. And before you know it, I've got dogs I'm looking for on the other side of the mountain. You know, it's like, come on, just don't let the get ego where you need to be. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> All right, so. Cameron was a great guest. Um, you know, may have him on in the future. He's got so much to offer, so much to offer. Um, and you know, I'm like, again, I'm blessed to have that relationship and, and have that contact with him. Yep. Um, so let's move on to, to Bart. Yeah. That seemed to be the, that seemed to be the, the, the kicker there. Um, got a lot of feedback. Um, Bart is, we got good feedback on that one. Yes. Um, like I said, I was fortunate enough to have some, have some mutual friends to that, that set me into that with Bart. Um, and you know, I, I said in some of the classes that let's talk about what it was about. It was talking about breeding programs. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. It was huge. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much more like we didn't. And again, there's so much more to be said because, you know, we try to keep it around an hour. Bart and I could have talked for days, um, for days. Um, breeding and picking your, and you're picking your, your best bets. Um, like I said, they run a very successful program. I mean, they're, you know, he said 80% success rate. That's pretty high, <laughs> like mm -hmm. really high. Yeah. Um, but they have a lot of things that other people don't. They've got the scientific data backing. They have, you know, they've got the dog psycho. I mean, they have the whole array with the university. They have stuff that we don't. Um, and they've been working on this for 13 years. They yeah. didn't, like he said, they didn't do it overnight. You know, they've had failures. They've had litters that they feel like should have been rock stars and ended up not being because they just didn't produce. And, you know, that's, that's a part of breeding dogs that we all run into. I mean, well, the thing I, I across last year that I mean, or two, well, they're two years old. They'll be two years old in September. That I thought, I honestly thought, this is all I'm ever going to need. Right. I mean, it, it, I remember it talking was, to you about I, that litter. Yeah. I mean, so disappointed. <clears throat> I mean, it hurt because <laughs> it goes back to my old stuff, my old ring dog. And, yeah. You know, I want to keep that legacy with him, but um, I'm, I'm slowly losing that. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to start over and, and re rebuild, but yeah, Bart, you know, looking at the litters, um, looking at the parents and their litters and their grandparents, knowing that lineage it, and I'm not a big person on papers. 
Like I could care less, but I know my line of dogs very well. And I, I mean, I, I've got notebooks wrote down with who, what, when, where, um, I've single registered all my dogs now with the uh, UKC just so other people will know what I know. The guys, you know, so forced and Wesley, they're like, how do you remember all this stuff? Well, I've been doing it 27 years and you know, I know I can go back five generations and tell you, Oh, I hunted with that dog. This is what he did. And this is what he didn't do. This is what he was good at. This was his faults. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing about breeding. Um, I think is very important is being able to, you know, find out that stuff. And I think that will make us better. Yeah. I, um, Bart was a guest that I really enjoyed because this guy is a, I mean, he's a guru on breeding. He's Auburn university built that program. I mean, imagine being a hound breeder and having somebody else foot in the bill for everything you do, building facilities, um, and say, go find out what's going on. You know, there are people out there hunting hounds right now that, that, if they would have had that kind of coordination, some of them have been wildly successful without it, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, and they made their own way. But what we get to see with Bart is a controlled situation. Again, we talked about control with Shetler and, and some of these other guys that we had and, or you've had on the podcast, Bart is able to set up a controlled situation where he can make a cross it's his job to document. It's his job to take the prodigy off of that litter and see how they react to different situations and then evaluate and look at the data and figure it out. So with, with, but the thing I liked about Bart was he was able to talk in language that any of us can understand. I mean, he was very down to earth, plain spoken. And when I listened to that episode, I thought, okay, I know what he's talking about because he's using language that I use that I hear other, other hunters and, and, and things use. I have a question though. Yep. So you talked about you having that line for 27 years when, what kind of challenges does that present? Like if I came and got one of your pups, and had him in Indiana a long way away. Of course, you and I talk enough that we we would figure it out. But say somebody from some from somewhere else came and got one of your pups and then tried to be successful in their own breeding program, how challenging do you think that would be without the background, without the knowledge, without all of that stuff, Heath? I mean, I think that it would be sheer luck. Um, I mean, I really do. Looking – like I said, my, the, so, I mean, you know, I got to give kudos words due. I mean, my, the line, my, my first bear dogs go back to Lance Hutton. Um, and Lance just was an amazing dog trainer and pup raiser. Mm -hmm. He has 700 acre farm pups run loose on it all the time. When they started catching game, they got tied up and he just started, like Bart said, he didn't do a lot of training. He just gave them the opportunity. They had that natural ability. Um, and I've said it throughout a podcast here or there, there's not a whole lot goes into a natural. Mm -hmm. You just got to turn them loose. 
turn them loose, give them the opportunity, give them the opportunity, and correct some bad behaviors, whether right. it be running off game or whatever, whatever. Um, those dogs are easy, and that's what we all look for. Um, but Lance started um, the line that that I have hunted for years. He had a um, he had a he had an old Walker male named Spot, and uh, Spot went back to Ball and Barney, and then he bred Spot to a Screaming Eagle. Willie Davis had a, a black and tan female. She was a Screaming Eagle bred female. So he crossed it for both. He crossed it for the nose, for the mouth, and it just happened to work. Um, he got a dog named Homer, and Homer is that foundation of what that I still have in my pen. Um, I've got the fifth generation down here um, in my pen, and um, actually I probably got more than that because I've got a grand granddaughter of Ring and a son, direct son of Ring. But where I where it got me is where i went through a divorce i let a couple of those dogs go i had some young dogs that had a lot of potential that i didn't keep mm -hmm. and that's that set me back i mean that set me back period there's no question um and it's just life it's that happens and it you know there's why i'm in the shape that i'm in with that that line but i know just about every dog in that five and centered five six generation pedigree because i've hunted with them all or owned them mm -hmm. i.e i owned them um the female that we bred to homer that got frosty um and ar ar is ring's dad i owned her mm -hmm. i bred her to my second junior male and got a dog got got one pup and i call him cannon and cannon made a phenomenal bear dog and cannon is the dad of buster and Buster is the dad of the pearl female that I have down here now. So I hunted with all those dogs, and I didn't know what I was doing some either. Right. You know, well, now I, looking back at it, I'm like, oh man, I've missed the, I missed it here, and I did this and I did that, and the inexperience was a lot of it. Well, I see a lot. I see it. a lot of comments still. You know, and I guess that's what I'm hoping to accomplish. I hope you accomplish, Heath. <clears throat> I still see a lot of comments out there about being lucky. If you can find three out of ten pups that make it, you're you're very fortunate. And what I hope that you can accomplish and the information you can bring is we don't have to settle for that. We don't have to settle for three out of ten, and we shouldn't be settling for that. If you're getting that kind no. of results out of your breeding program, then you're doing something wrong. But here's the kicker. And what I've found from, from raising litters of puppies, I lose all control of what happens to that puppy once it goes somewhere. You know, mm -hmm. that is our variable uh, when we start producing mass amounts of pups and putting them out there and we start relying on this historical breeders list and stuff like that. If you find, if you... It, it can be a big hurdle for us. Uh, and what you guys are doing with your hunting group and making sure what you're doing, Heath, by keeping those pups close to home, you can evaluate those pups and mm -hmm. know what you've got going on. And I think that goes into the responsible breeding part <clears throat> is if you're going to make that cross, you've got to be willing to put in the work on the other side 
to keep track so that you don't make the same mistake again. Yeah, that and there's one of that's one of the biggest mistakes that I've made. A couple of the letters that I had through the 2000 uh, 2010 to 2015, I couldn't tell you where any of them went. Um, I couldn't tell you who had them, what they did. I, I couldn't. I just couldn't tell you. Yep. And of course, that was the period in, of time that you know life had taken a change. And um, that's one of the things that I will change going forward is being able to keep and keep my hands on or around the dogs and knowing what we should do, not do, or put into our breeding program or not put into it. Um, the last two litters of pups that I've raised, I have not advertised, and I've, I have kept very close track of where they went. I actually hand-selected and approached people that I wanted to get these pups in their hands because I mm -hmm. knew they were solid trainers. I knew they were good dog men. I knew that that I could have access and communicate with them and find out what's going on so that I don't repeat the mistake. And Mark Dufresne does not sell a pup. You know, he, mm -hmm. he makes a cross and he gets those pups in places where he thinks they can have the most success. Um, Roy Clark down in Tennessee does the mm -hmm. same thing. He's got 40 dogs tied up, but he knows what every one of those dogs is so that and I think if you're going to raise litter pups, you have to be intentional like that if we ever hope to accomplish that 80% mark. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I'm, like I said, I've changed my thinking. Um, the couple things that, that Bart has, and we're going to get into this as we go through this journey and the podcast is the developmental, um, program the ages at which we should start determining yes or no that's going to open some um, eyes <clears throat> yeah um and like i said the developmental stage of dogs and you heard him talk about the one dog that didn't develop didn't develop and then all of a sudden at the end he was a rock star and they had picked the strongest dog in the litter who ended up washing yep all right first yep <clears throat> the first I don't know. Cannon went off. I don't know what it was. Something went off at the stadium and the dog was done, done. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we want to, we want to look at the developmental stage. Um, one of the things I don't know if the listeners picked up on this or not, but it's so important to me and you've heard me say it. Even Ariel had said it. Um, most of these guys talk about um, un un unprovoked arousal. They want a dog that's level headed. Mm -hmm. They don't want the dog that is over the top 24 seven. Um, that's something that I picked up because in the police side of it, I know exactly what they're talking about. Cause my last Mally, um, Odin, uh, Bart talked about him expending energy. Like he sat in the back of the car for 12 hours and it was just bang, 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 back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for 12 hours. If they called me at four or five o'clock in the evening to do a track, the dog was spent. I got 400 yards out of him. And if I didn't find him in 400 yards, I was wasting everybody's time right. because he burnt that much energy. Um, that's something that is very important to me in my selection process today. That was one of the reasons that Allie was one of my, my first picks mm -hmm. because I seen that in her. 
I seen that laid back, you know, okay. And then, you know, she could amp it up and drop it off. Um, I'm seeing a little change in that now. So I'm curious to know when, Hey, do I need to wait till 10 months before I start making this? Do I need to wait till they're a year old? You know, where do I need to start being more selective at what age? Mm-hmm. And again, uh, BB bought that pup to me yesterday. It's 10 weeks old. Like, you know, this is going to be a different challenge. Yeah. You know, but I know where all the pups are. I know the mom and the dad. I've hunted with the dad. I, I know a lot about um, the dogs in general. And the dad's brother has been produced. He's produced two litters that are pretty good. So I'm interested. Me and BB's talked about it. We're interested to see how this all plays out with with this litter. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's something that's important. I don't think people take that. Um, like for me, that's very important to me nowadays. Um, and like I said, I've got a dog in my kennel right now that absolutely drives me. He doesn't shut down. Drives me batty. Um, and he's got a lot of natural ability. And I've done made up my mind. He's a year old. He literally just turned a year old a couple of days ago. If he does not do something by the end of the training season, which is October, I'm not keeping him just because of that behavior in the kennel. Yeah. There ain't nothing wrong with him. And like I said, he's going to have to be above average for me to keep him just because that behavior drives me batty. And then Bart talked about the the whelping, the mother. Oh, he get, yeah. He gets that from his mother. He gets it from her. Well, let me, let me say something about that. I argued for a long time, you know, <clears throat> It was ignorance on my part because I didn't take that part into account. This is a perfect example. I mean, we kind of got on Dale Lee and him misunderstanding something. When we talk about genetics and people make statements like, I think that they get more from their mother than they get from the sire. Mm -hmm. I think what I was looking at was scientifically that's impossible. You know, Bart said 50 50, but didn't he say, but then, but then where, where people are getting that idea is after that puppy is born, it is picking up all kinds of cues and different things from its mother because it's in that whelping box with that mother. And, and if she runs out of that box and she stomps on them because she hears something because she spun out and crazy. She's developing behaviors in those pups that will last the rest of their lifetime. And when they see things that um, the mother reacts to, and I forget, was it Ariel talking about that? When a puppy Mm -hmm. sees the reaction from its mother, or maybe it never saw the the reaction. The mother can already have it. It's it's pre-delivered, yes. She experienced something before that that litter was ever bred. And she developed yep. that feeling about it, and it's passed on through the pups. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it's made yeah. me look at look at my females and think, and look at them differently, and think about: Are they really good mothers, or how do they react? And so that's where that idea that the mother contributes more than fifty percent. From some of these guys, if I've argued with you about it on Facebook, I apologize. You were right. It's not genetics, it's behavioral type stuff. And I'm learning mm-hmm. that through your podcast. Yeah. 
um, like I said, Bart had so much information. Um, like I said, I, I took the biggest thing that I took from him and, uh, so like a lot of you old timers, like I said, you're already doing this stuff. You knew this with maybe without even knowing it, but you break down the parents, the parents' litter, you break down, you know, the litters of the puppies, and then you decide, okay, is this a breeder? And he gets what he called it. Is this a breeder or not? Um, and it don't have to be the over the top dog. Um, it don't have to be the over the top dog. Um, if you have a dog that right. is very high in, in some trait, you want to compromise that with the female or the male and make sure that it meshes and it's not, you're not doubling up on those behaviors. Um, so I'll give you an example of, the, I'll give you an example of the old timer that's figured it out. And we're going to throw in Steve Burkholder's podcast this past, this past Friday about with Dick Brothers. Dick Brothers figured out he does not choose the alpha female or the alpha male out of a litter to keep. He finds that medium keel dog, the one that's <laughs> right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Dick, Dick Brothers has been breeding walkers for six generations, and he's figured that out. He doesn't have a degree. He doesn't. It's just something that a good dog man figures out. And those are the parts that are amazing to me. I mean, yeah, we're trying to put in a lot of, of science and different stuff and give people the reason things are happening. But kudos to those guys that were just smart enough to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've missed the bus a couple times through the year. Well, a lot of times oh, through too. the years. And I've made some really good crosses when I had my old plot brand, uh, female Brandy. You know, I bred her to Outlaw that um, Denny and Scott Long had, and then uh, Don Saxton had had him, and I bred to Outlaw. That cross just hit. Um, but there was some line breeding back in the third generation. Um, that 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 cross made it. Uh, when I bred uh, Steve's Roper dog, uh, I had a couple good dogs, but not overall in the litter. Um, mm-hmm. So well, that's something else know, that Bart talked. That's something else Bart talked about. You know, same thing that we've been saying. I've heard older houndsmen say it. John Wick wrote about it. You know, any experienced guy that that was objective and looked at it, figured it out. That old adage, you know, don't go breed to that dog that was a superstar in a litter of duds. You know, go find yes. a solid litter of dogs overall. Yes. And that's where you choose your, your breeding, your next breeding pair. Yes. And that, I think that's where, that's, that's where I have messed up. Um, with the litter that you and I were talking about that I bred to here two years ago, female is a superstar. Phenomenal, phenomenal dog. Um, but there was only two in that litter, two that turned out. Yeah. Um, and then the male, you were thinking it was going to be eight out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. I said that. I mean, I thought there's no way this misses. No way. So, but if I look back on the male side, um, he was the only pup out of the litter. She only had two and she squished one. So he was the, I had nothing else to go by. So I I missed, I missed it on that one. I, I mean, I missed it. It was, you know, looking at it now, I would have, I would have done things a lot differently. Um, but yes. Um, but yeah, so yep. Bart, Bart was great. Um, 
hopefully we can continue that conversation. Um, like I said, Cameron's a wealth of knowledge, Jeff, a wealth of knowledge. And I hope the listeners, um, you know, thank you guys for reaching out. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys actually listening to the podcast because, um, you know, I got several messages or, you know, um, some comments and stuff that, you know, we want to better houndsmen, the breeds that we're hunting, the dogs that we're hunting and just be better people. And, you know, I want to thank you guys for, for listening. No, I was just going to, I was going to put in there, Heath, you know, we're just giving you what you're doing is you are giving us resources. We can't cover all the knowledge that these people have in an hour. Mm -mm, you know, there's no. no way you can do that. But all of these guys are accomplished. Their, their information is out there. So we are giving you resources. If you're serious about breeding, do we plan on having Bart on again? Yeah, I, I, we've talked enough. I know you do. Yep. But go out and find your information. We're pointing, we're, we're just pointing out stuff along this journey saying, see that? That's being done right. And now you need to go back and read Jeff Shetler's books if that interests you. Or look at Cameron Haynes, listen to his podcast, or not Cameron Haynes, Cameron Ford. Um, Ford. I'm going to have to edit that. Um, but uh, he's got several things that are published. He does a podcast. Listen to it. Pick up the things that you can use in your program. Same way with Bart. Yep. But, again, guys, thank you guys for listening to the journey. Um, thank you guys for the comments, um, taking time out of your day just to be a part of what we're doing. So we end every podcast Absolutely. with, um, guys, thank you for finding helping, helping find a way to teach, train, or learn.